0: Good morning. You ever uh, start feeling a cold coming on and you just tell yourself it's not going to happen? It's not, you try to talk yourself out of it? I'm doing that with the weather. What a beautiful snowy morning. So excited. The groundhog saw his shadow today, though. The groundhog saw his shadow, so only six more weeks. Okay. <laughs> um, hey, I just want you to know uh, Pastor Doug was supposed to be here this morning and he takes care of a lot of details around here, but he showed up and he. He was sounding, he had a voice deeper than Greg. Uh, those of you who know Pastor Greg, it, he sounded like he should be hosting a late night jazz show on radio. But as we asked a few more questions, he said, I've never, it's been years since I had a, a cold like this with a fever. And we went, whoa, fever? No. So the thing that finally convinced him to leave and go home was, do you love these people? And he went, yes. Oh, uh, So Doug is home. And he's fine, but he's got a cold. But if you notice any little details or if you see something out in the commons area after the service that needs a little help, Doug is one of those behind-the-scenes guys. He takes care of things. But if you notice any hiccups, some grace. And, uh, and if you really don't like it, Doug's a wuss. <laughs> I'm totally kidding, totally kidding. All right, we are, uh, we are we, this week and one more. Um, in this old and new. And then we we run into Thanksgiving and then uh, the four Sundays of Advent and then Christmas this year is on a Sunday. And I'll remind you that this summer, Pastor Doug came to me and said, you know, he used to be a solo pastor. um, And so he's used to preaching. And if you're a preacher and you don't have opportunity to preach very often, it's like an itch that needs to be scratched. So he asked me um, this summer, hey, is there ever a time that I could, that I could like put together a series and preach through it? And I don't see why not, so we talked to the exec team and the elders about it, and they agreed. So Pastor Doug, there'll be one week when, just like normal, there's three on, one off, three on, one off. Uh, one of those weeks, another pastor from, uh, from our church will be preaching um, during Advent in these services, but Doug is going gonna, is, is gonna to take that, that Advent series and preach Christmas Eve and Christmas. And sometimes when the lead pastor isn't doing something like that, people think, is there a coup? Or is the pastor worn out? None of that's going on. Uh, Lynn and I are normally gone for a couple of weeks um, right at the beginning of, of, of December. But I will be back here. It gives me a chance to preach over at Mosaic, but I'll be worship leading on occasion during that time. Um, so just be praying for in advance for Advent as we look forward to uh, the coming of the Christ child, the God incarnate, Emmanuel. Um, so... With that said, we're going to be in Isaiah 53 today, and there'll be some other things that, that you hear from the New Testament. They won't be up on the screen, uh, and then we're going to end the, the the sermon with something that Pastor Chris shared with me just yesterday, um, and it was it just spoke to my heart. It spoke to his, and he's preaching on this in Mosaic as well. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to I'm going to give you a little bit of background on Isaiah 53, and then we'll read it, and then we'll talk through how Jesus fulfilled so many of these prophecies, all of the prophecies, but we'll only talk about a few of them, uh, of us, Isaiah chapter 53. Let's pray together. Lord, your God, we thank you for that. We thank you that we don't know what the future holds, <laughs> but you show us in Isaiah 53 that you do. So, Lord, we don't know what's going to happen here in Michigan in Western civilization, the United States in particular, we don't know, but you do. So, while we don't know what the future holds, we know the one who holds the future. We trust you. We grieve, and at times we rejoice, but it's because we know you're sovereign that gives us hope. So, Lord, as we hear about something you said through your prophet Isaiah 700 years before Jesus was even born, we ask that you open our eyes to see what you want us to see, to open our ears so we hear what you want us to hear, and you open our hearts so that we receive what you want us to receive. Lord, only your word for us today, not my word for them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, just so you know, before we get into this, and I'll, I'll tell you this at the beginning, I'll tell you this at the end, and then there'll be a few more lines after that. There was a time when academic skeptics looked at Isaiah 53, this is back at the late 1800s, early 1900s, and said, it's just too coincidental for these things to have been written and for Jesus to fulfill them. And I agree, it is beyond coincidence. So, but the way academicians talked about it, is that that means, that must mean that after Jesus had died and resurrected, when the canon of Scripture was being put together, that some New Testament authors or some people in the early church must have written this up and then placed it within the manuscript of Isaiah, because it is impossible for someone to have predicted so accurately what Jesus would go through. Now, I'm going to leave it right there for a second, and then I'm going to, at the end, we'll remind you of how we know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, scientifically speaking, that this passage was written well before, 700 years, but we know for sure, written well before Jesus ever walked this earth. I'm going to start in, uh, in, in, in chapter 52, and then we'll move into 53. You'll know. It'll be up on the screen in the, for, the, for the projectionists. When you, hear, when you hear it said, who has believed our message, that's when you start up on the screen. Chapter 52, verse 13 says this. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just... As there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So, he, so will he sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand." Who has believed our message and to whom has, has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Just so you know, if you go back into 52, 51, 52, and into 53, God is talking about the arm of the Lord, his power, his majesty, his sovereignty. This, this, little, this little transition here is to say that the person that we're going to talk about just after this is the arm of the Lord. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before us like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For, trans, for the transgression of my people, he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked which most of us know what that means. Iniquity, just another word for sin, but the kind of the condition, how, how utterly depraved humanity can be. So you know, as a Christian, you know who this is pointing toward. But I want to let you know, we're not going to talk about all of them, but there are so many things that were fulfilled in the life of Jesus that people started thinking that, that this must have been created after Jesus' death and resurrection and pushed back to the Old Testament. Now, I will let you know this one thing about the prophecies of the Old Testament fulfilled in Jesus. Not all of them here, but the the chances of one man by chance fulfilling all the prophecies of the Old Testament as Jesus did would be like taking quarters, covering the entire state of Texas with quarters all facing heads up, covering the entire state of Texas with quarters. And on the bottom, on one of the tail sections, put a dot, just a black dot, on the bottom, all of the same year, all the same. I use no way to distinguish one quarter from another and then randomly be parachuted in from a plane. You don't know where you're going to land and the f- chances of you landing with the wind and all that stuff, landing, taking off your chute, reaching down and picking up a quarter. If you landed and picked up the quarter with that one dot, that's about how, how random it would be. How, how the, the, the astronomical chances of one person fulfilling all the prophecies of the old Testament as Jesus did. There's another one that says you could, you would, if you could stack 50 cent pieces to the moon and back, that's, that's how likely, that, that, the chances are one in that many 50 cent pieces that one person could fulfill all the prophecies of the Old Testament as Jesus did. So let's just look at a few of these. The Messiah, it says here, was to be despised and rejected by men. John chapter 1 verse 10 says this, he was in the world And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Luke chapter 20, or Luke chapter 23, verses 20 through 24. Remember that he was despised and rejected by men, wanting to release Jesus. Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time, Pilate spoke to them, why, what crime has this man committed? I found, him, I found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insi- insistently demanded that he be crucified. And their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. And he released a man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. The one they asked for and surrendered Jesus to their will. In Isaiah 53, verses 5 through 12, we are told that the Messiah will be a sacrifice for our sin. And while the whole of the Gospels speak to that, Paul sums it up in Romans. Hold on, I just lost it. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless... Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, one might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We are told in Isaiah 53, verse 7, that he will be silent before his accusers. And we see both in Mark and in Matthew. I'll read the Matthew passage here, Matthew 27, 12 12 through 14. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, do you hear the testimony that they're bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. We're told in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9, he will be buried with the rich. Matthew 27, 57. As the evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body and Pilate ordered, ordered that it may, give to him. it may be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance of the tomb and he went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb to witness it. Now, I don't know about you, and you know very well that I'm not God, but if I were God, I might leave out that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. I I just don't see that as being something that significant. But so that we would know that the God of the universe sees the future, he gives us those little tidbits And it's recorded in scripture that Joseph of Arimathea, you do not have a grave that has been cut into the stone if you are not a very, very wealthy man. And this man was willing to risk his reputation because he had become a disciple of Jesus, but he's a member of the Sanhedrin. We're told in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12, that the Messiah will be counted among the criminals. Well, we know he died a criminal's death. Two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right, one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're the Son of God. Now, we could go for hours and give you every scripture reference that ties back to Isaiah 53, but I think you see, just by hearing Isaiah 53, you know. Who it points toward. But there's a piece of this that we miss, I think, or at least I miss. There's a piece of this. He, he's the suffering servant, yes. He's the wounded healer, yes. But do you notice right at the beginning when it says that he's a man of sorrows? I want to talk about that for a minute. But before that, I want to let you know how we know that Isaiah 53 was authored by Isaiah 700 years prior. You see, in the late 1800s, in the early 1900s, ac- academics had decided that, the, that they were just, just too coincidental. There's too many coincidences. So, it must have been authored after the fact and then placed back into the Old Testament. But in 1946, a young shepherd was walking in the Negev in Israel near Qumran, and he chucked a rock into a cave, and he heard something break, and he investigated it. It was a clay pot that contained scrolls, scrolls that had been hidden there when the temple was destroyed, when when, when persecution came, not only to the Christians, but also to the Jews, and over the years, archaeologists have found those, have, have, put, them, have put them together very carefully. We have wonderful uh, evidences of, 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 of how old the scriptures are. But they found several different uh, scraps of and, and, and pieces of Isaiah, the writer, but Isaiah 53 in particular. And they've carbon dated every one of them. And the newest one, the youngest one, the one that is, is the worst case scenario, the closest to Jesus was, was, was 100 years before Jesus ever walked the earth. So we know that Isaiah 53 was written as prophecy, not as convenient Hindsight. And we understand that Jesus, that many didn't see the Messiah, that they didn't think of him as going to be someone who was a suffering servant or a wounded healer. Even his disciples, Jesus', when, Jesus disciples, when they were walking with him, when he, when he said, oh, look, I'm going to, we're going to go up to Jerusalem, and there the Son of Man is going to be handed over and crucified. And I'm going to come back. They didn't believe him. They didn't buy it Because it just wasn't something they could fathom. But the thing I think we miss, or at least I know I have, is that Jesus was a man of sorrows, the Messiah, the one God chose to redeem humanity, the one God chose to suffer in His soul for you and I, the one who, who took the punishment that we deserve, according to Isaiah 53, and placed it on Himself the one who redeemed, that sprinkles nations, the one who who at at the name and, and at the voice kings, Isaiah 52, kings shut up, is a man of sorrow. Think about it for a minute. He was the God of the universe walking around with skin on, God in a bod. And as he was walking around, as he was growing up, but as he was walking around and his disciples... You know that there wasn't one other human being on the planet just like Jesus? Never has been. Never was before. If you've ever walked around, if you've ever been with a group of people, like you you show up to a family gathering, you haven't seen people in 20 years, and your life has changed significantly since you saw them last. Their lives have changed significantly since they've seen you last. And you feel alone even though you're all together. You know that sense of these people don't really get me? This person doesn't really know me? Could there be someone like me, someone that can understand me? Jesus, for 33 years, walked this planet, and not one human being really knew him. Those of you who are widowed understand this to some extent. You know, there's a difference between being lonely and aloneness. You imagine the God of the universe. Now in corporeal, cor- corporeal form and in, in, in bodily form, not having the, the, the perichoretical, I know it's a big word, but that, that loving, committed relationship with the Father and the Spirit, not being perpetually in communion with the other two parts of the Godhead. Can you imagine what he gave up for you and me and the sorrow, that, that the longing there must be in there? The God of the universe wept, shaking wept. It doesn't say he cried. It doesn't say he uttered, a, he, he, he squeezed out a tear for a good movie moment. He wept, shuddering, stuff coming out of his nose, kind of weeping, when a friend of his died. And he, 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 they were told that, that he was sick and he was dying, and Jesus waited four days before he went because he, he knew he had to be, as Pastor Kurt said when he preached on Lazarus, he had to be dead, dead. But Jesus wasn't weeping because his friend was dead, because he knows he's going to say, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus is going to be resuscitated and brought back from the dead. Jesus, the God of the universe, walking around among humans with skin on, grieved that the world has gotten to the spot where death is even a piece of it. Imagine how he grieves now. When we look at the world and we look at decisions that humanity makes and how we treat one another, the God of the universe, Jesus, the Messiah, the, the, the Messiah is a man of sorrows. And he didn't just weep when Lazarus died. He wept as he, as he was coming out of the garden and he sees Jerusalem. He wept for Jerusalem, not because of what they were going to do for him, but because their rejection of him, what it was going to do to them. He says in that moment, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But they're not willing. He was a man of sorrows. He was betrayed. Have you ever been betrayed? Have you ever had someone you trusted turn on you, throw you under the bus, so to speak? A child who rejects you, a spouse who steps outside of the marriage, a boss who you worked for, you worked hard to make him or her rich, and they decide now that it's convenient, you're gone. You've been betrayed. Have you had someone look you in the eye, tell you they've got your back, and then turn around and stab it. One of Jesus' best friends, one he spent every day for three years with, Judas, sold him out for money. One of his best friends, the one he named from Simon to Petra to the rock, even though he told them, You're going to deny me. When when, when given the opportunity to speak on behalf of Jesus, when Jesus is being tried and beaten, you're one of them. I am not. I don't know what you're talking about. I am not, not. I've never heard of him. Jesus was tempted by the devil himself in the wilderness, and even by one of his closest friends. He has to say to Peter, get behind me, Satan. He was accused. He was called a drunk. He was called demon-possessed. He was called crazy. He was called a blasphemer. In fact, that's why he was killed, because they accused the God of the universe of blaspheming against God. He was mistreated. He was unappreciated. He was beaten. He was crucified. And he even suffered his own father's forsaking him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the only time in the New Testament that Jesus calls the father God. Because that's the moment that the suffering servant, the wounded healer, the man of sorrows, took on your sin. So if you are someone who has suffered... Now, there are many of us, and praise God that there are, many people that are like, man, things just go well for them. They kind of skip along, and, and it's not just a glass half, glass half full kind of thing. They just seem to be hashtag blessed. And it doesn't matter what happens. They, they, every now and then, oh, I don't know what that, what that blood test is going to say. And it's like, oh, it's all good. Just, you know the people. Everything seems to fall in line. And praise God we have them because it gives us hope for what eternity with God looks like. But for the rest of us, those who suffer, those who hurt, those who have things happen to them that are not our fault, those that have been betrayed, those that have gotten more and more, have more and more pain, not less and less, those who truly suffer, you're in really good company. See, the American view of who Jesus should be is that he's here to make our lives go easier or better. That if we're good and we talk to him enough, we give enough to the church or to other ministries, then God's going to bless us and we get what we want. But if that wasn't true of Jesus and it wasn't true of Paul and it wasn't true of any of the other apostles except maybe John, although John was imprisoned, then why do we expect that it would be true of us? Why do we expect that things should just go our way? When God, through his prophet Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus was birthed, he said that my servant, the arm of the Lord, the way that God shows his power, was going to be through powerlessness, through silence, through bleeding, through suffering, through betrayal, through weeping, through hardship. There's a beauty in this, even though it's not what any of us desire. Jesus Himself at the Garden of Gethsemane cried out to the Father, this cup of suffering, can you take it from me? He was so stressed about it that there were droplets of blood in His sweat but then what did he say? Not my will, but yours be done. The very thing that Adam should have said when tempted and didn't. He made what we've done wrong, right. And he gave us victory. But is there ever in your life victory without cost? There's never victory in war or anything else, without surrender. And Jesus, the arm of the Lord, the suffering servant, the wounded healer, the man of sorrows, surrendered his own inheritance, so to speak, took on the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and not consider equality with God something to be held on to and suffered for you death, even death on a cross. So let me just, little thing here. Does that put the last week in perspective? If he can tell us 700 years in advance what his Only begotten Son will do for you, for me. Do you think that He doesn't know what's going to happen 700 years from now? Sometimes He calls His people to sorrow. Sometimes He calls His people to tear our garments and repent. And sometimes He calls His people to rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again rejoice but most of the time he calls us people to all three of those things at once. To rejoice in the Lord always, to rejoice in our trials, not for them, but that means there will be trials, and with trials comes pain. So we can either join him in his suffering, or we can do our best to avoid suffering but that's kind of like crucifying him all over again according to the author of Hebrews. And I don't think any of us want to do that. So while this might feel like a downer at the moment, if you own it, knowing that Jesus is a man of sorrows, a man of suffering, a God of wounds, it actually gives us hope. Hope for today. Hope for today and strength for tomorrow. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the man of sorrows. Thank you that he wasn't just a man, but thank you that we see in this, in this passage that almost a dozen times he talks about for our iniquity, that you, God, would be willing to suffer so that your people can know you. It's just astonishing to me. We pray that you give us courage for what lies ahead, and peace, because we have the salvation of our souls now, not just when we die and meet you in person. We love you, we praise you, and we trust you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.